Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And it's time for Unearthed in July Part 2. Hooray! Hooray! Uh, we got a lot of the favorite things in this edition, including the edibles and potables and the shipwrecks and just uh, some weird stuff <laughs> that is all grouped together because it was all kind of odd. Uh, and some other assorted findings. I think weird stuff is a great category, but we are going to start with edibles and potables. A team in Mantai in Sri Lanka believes that they have found the world's oldest clove, estimated to be 1,000 years old. There have been other clove discoveries that were older than that, but at this point, they're believed to be misidentifications. Cloves are not native to Sri Lanka, though. They grow in the Maluku Islands, which are about 4,000 miles away. So this is not just the oldest clove, but it's also evidence of a wide-ranging trade in spices that dates back at least 1,000 years. And this is supported by peppercorns of about the same age found at the same site, which probably came from the Indian subcontinent. Archaeologists in China's Jiangsu province found a jar full of eggs in a 2,500-year-old tomb, and that led newspapers around the world to make a lot of jokes about thousand-year eggs, also known as century eggs. These were just eggs. They were in very good condition, considering their age. Only one of them uh, was obviously broken, although the team did report that the material inside the eggs would have been largely decomposed by now. They planned to conduct some x-ray studies to determine exactly how many eggs were in this jar because they were way too delicate to handle without the risk of damaging them. They are not certain why the eggs were placed in the tomb, whether this was an offering or if it was more of a symbol of rebirth or whether the deceased just really liked eggs and wanted to make sure that they had some eggs in the afterlife. I want eggs in the afterlife. Yes, please. Researchers in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands now believe that the presence of very small snail and clam shells in archaeological sites there are evidence of children helping their parents gather food through foraging. Previously, the conclusion had been that these types of shells were evidence of people who were really close to starvation and were just eating whatever they could find. But this team looked at shell middens dating back to about 1,600 years ago and concluded that the adult foragers were focusing on large shellfish that were really worth their time and effort to crack into, while the children were picking up whatever they found that was small enough for them to handle easily. This is all sort of speculative, but it's also similar to research taking place with current populations of islands in the Pacific, where foraging patterns have been the same for generations, and where children routinely gather with their parents. Moving on to some other foodstuffs, a team excavating a construction site in Ontario, Canada, found some charred quinoa seeds from a species of the plant that was native to eastern North America, but is extinct today. These seeds date back to around 900 BCE, which isn't the oldest quinoa seed ever, but it is the farthest north that they have been found that far back in history by a lot. The previous northernmost sample of this quinoa was from Kentucky, and then the next oldest crop found in this part of Ontario is corn that dated back to 500 BCE, so 400 years younger. 
this is technically a 2018 find. The seeds themselves were unearthed in 2010, but the excavation they were part of had collected 140,000 of them, and most of them were charred. So it took years to go through all of them to find out what was what. So it was late 2018 when the findings on this were published. Today, people think of quinoa as coming from South America, and it does, but this is a species of food crop that was living at the time in what's now Kentucky, Illinois, and Arkansas. In similar news, a team of researchers from universities and institutions in the U.S., the U.K., China, and Lithuania has cross-referenced the findings of hundreds of studies of charred food crops like rice, millet, wheat, and barley to create a massive map of how these foods moved around the prehistoric world. And what they found was that these staple foods moved a very long way between 8,000 and 1,500 BCE. So I wouldn't necessarily put all of that into the prehistoric bucket. Wheat and barley were carried from Southwest Asia into Europe, China, and the Indian subcontinent. Rice spread across much of Asia. Millet and sorghum originated in Western Africa, but moved to the Eastern and Sub-Saharan part of the continent, as well as across the Indian Ocean. And then different types of millet started out in Eastern Asia and moved West all the way to Europe. Basically, although people might imagine that food became more globalized after Europeans started traveling to North America, that whole thing really started much, much earlier with ordinary farmers trying new crops and strategies just to get enough food. Now we have several things about beer. Researchers in Peru are crediting a beer-like beverage called chicha with keeping the Wari civilization stable in that part of the continent from about 600 to 1100 CE. This team has done research into pottery and the residues within the pottery vessels and suggests that these pots and the chicha that was being made, they were all being made locally with people traveling to what was essentially a tap room for festivals and for more casual gatherings. The beverage was also made with drought-resistant pepperberries, which would have helped ensure a steady supply of beer, even when other ingredients were much harder to grow. A lot of headlines about this was like, the secret to a long-lived society is plenty of beer. In other beer news, in 1886, the SS Oregon sank off Long Island. There were no fatalities, but sadly, a load of beer went down with the ship. And this year, a diver brought three bottles back up from the bottom and gave one of those bottles to Sirius Brewing Company, who planned to see if they could extract living yeast from it. And the diver was one of the brewery's regular customers. Staff at the brewery also tasted this beer, just a few drops of it. According to the brewery's owner, Bill Felter, quote, it was nasty. I mean, I feel like we could have said that without tasting it, but that's just Probably my guess. So. Um, a few days after the story broke about Sirius Brewing's plan to brew shipwreck beer, another story made the rounds. That St. James Brewery in Holbrook, Long Island, had already been making beer with yeast extracted from a bottle from that same wreck for at least a year. That beer uses both the shipwreck yeast and a modern strain, and owner-brewer Jamie Adams was at the time planning a beer with only yeast from the wreck to debut at the New York State Brewers Fest. So, after getting this news that another brewery had already been doing the thing he planned to do, Felter shelved his plans to make a similar beer, out of respect for Adams having done it already. Basically, the two New York brewers were trying not to horn in on each other's beers. This seems like a pretty amicable resolution, especially since at first Adams thought about filing a cease and desist over it. So hooray for brewers being cool. Yeah, it's a whole saga about this (laughs) shipwreck beer. 
Uh, and in one last piece of beer news, scientists in Israel have extracted yeast from a pottery that was up to 5,000 years old, and they've used that to brew beer. We got a note about this one from listener Chana, who mentioned that the yeast had come from an archaeological find we had talked about and unearthed in 2018. I think that's actually a much older find. Uh, the pottery that we talked about in that particular thing was much older, but it's totally possible that we did talk about the same find at somewhere in a previous unearthed. Because when I looked at, I was just keyword searching the past scripts for the word beer. Uh-huh. We've talked about beer in almost all of them. I'm I'm waiting for the giant vodka discovery somewhere. <laughs> Since I'm not really a beer drinker. Um, okay, so this next one is not exactly about food, but bear with us. There is a lot of variety in human speech, but a prevailing theory has been that most speech sounds have existed for most of human history, not really changing all that much. So even though some sounds like mm are common in much of the world, while others, like the clicking sounds in some African languages, are more localized, that all of these specific sounds have actually stayed pretty much the same over time. But there's some new research from the University of Zurich and two Max Planck Institutes that suggests maybe not, hypothesizing that some sounds like f and v are relatively new, and they only came about as the shape of our human palate changed, with the changes of the palate coming along with changes to what we eat. So basically, early humans had a diet that was full of tough foods that were difficult to chew. So by the time people reached adulthood, their upper and lower teeth met edge to edge. But over time, people started eating softer foods, shifting their palate so that they had a slight overbite, with their upper front teeth slightly in front of the lower ones most of the time. And that may have made it possible for languages to start including sounds known as labiodentals, in which your lower lip touches your upper teeth. These sounds exist in about half of languages worldwide, and they're especially prevalent in European languages, apparently rising with advances in milling and other technologies that helped people produce softer foods. These aren't the first researchers to suggest this connection, but earlier linguists have been a lot more cautious that this could just be a correlation rather than a causation. And now we're going to take a quick break so Tracy and I can make lots of weird noises with our mouths and figure (laughs) out what we're doing and if that is palate-related through history. Uh, We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we have a couple or three uh, discoveries coming up that basically confirm existing oral histories. First up, archaeologists in Nova Scotia have been using ground-penetrating radar to try to confirm whether Fort Anne is the site of an Acadian burial ground. There's a known British cemetery at that site, but it's also believed that there are at least 2,000 Acadian people buried there as well without any sort of marker remaining for them. Preliminary evidence suggests that this is the case. This radar study found very regularly spaced disturbances that were arranged in lines at the same depth every time. So if this is accurate, it would confirm the Acadian belief that they have ancestors buried at Fort Anne. This ground-penetrating radar work really happened at the end of December, but it was just making news at the start of this year. And I'll also note that we do have the Acadian expulsion on the idealist for a future episode don't know when it will happen. Archaeologists have confirmed the oral histories of the Lake Babine First Nation in northern British Columbia, Canada, something the nation had asked to have done. 
According to the nation's oral history, there were fishing villages along the shores of Lake Babine before the arrival of European colonists in the area. The team found evidence of these villages, one of them quite large, along with wooden fishing weirs, which would have been used to catch sockeye salmon. And in our last confirmation, researchers have also discovered that First Nations people in the northwestern coast of North America were farming clams for about 3,000 years longer than previously thought, and that study had focused on clam beds that had been recorded in native oral histories. We are now moving on to one of my favorite things, art, in this case, cave art and rock art. Uh, There is a massive collection of witch marks in a limestone gorge called Creswell Crags in East Midlands in the UK. Staff knew there were some kind of markings down there, but they didn't really know much about them, and they described them to visitors as Victorian graffiti. But a couple of cavers remarked on them last year, leading experts to take a closer look. What they found was not the two or three markings that they were kind of expecting. There were as many as a thousand marks These were meant as wards against evil. They included marks that looked like a V to stand for the Virgin Mary and shapes that look like crosses and the letters PM, which stands for Pache Maria. These types of marks were common in the area from the 16th through the 19th centuries, although it's not completely clear exactly when these particular marks were made or exactly what people were hoping to keep out or, for that matter, in by making these marks. Yeah, these are, these are the sorts of marks that you will really see in a lot of places, like not just uh, in the UK. If you go to um, old, like, colonial-era homes in North America, a lot of times there are Vs and crosses and things in places that were meant to ward evil away. This is just an astoundingly large collection of them. Uh, and I, I am really curious of, like, did you think there was a hellmouth down there? What was happening? <laughs> Researchers have also recorded and interpreted a set of Cherokee inscriptions in Manitou Cave in Alabama. The first of these inscriptions dates back to April of 1828. So that was just a few years before the Cherokee and other Native peoples were removed from the area under the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and also just three years after the Cherokee adopted the Cherokee syllabary as a system of writing for the Cherokee language. The inscriptions in the cave document things like a stickball game and the religious ceremonies surrounding it. Stickball is not a simple sport. It has important ritual significance within Cherokee culture and religion. And there are also inscriptions on the ceiling of the cave written backwards as if the reader is somewhere within the rock. So this research team included European Americans as well as members of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, the United Katua Band of Cherokees, and the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And they all worked together to determine both how to interpret what the inscriptions mean and to decide what should and shouldn't be published in academic work, since some of these inscriptions were just not meant to be read beyond the Cherokee. This work was also important because there's not a lot of archaeological evidence of a Cherokee presence in the area. The cave became a tourist attraction in 1888, and other physical connections to the Cherokee were removed or destroyed at that time. Moving on, archaeologists studying indigenous petroglyphs in Australia have discovered that crews of 19th century whaling ships added their own carvings to the same area as well, 
sometimes right on top of the existing indigenous art. Some of the carvings in the Dampier Archipelago are up to 50,000 years old, and the Whalers' editions are from 1841 and 1849. The team found carvings from crew members of the Connecticut and the Delta, both of which were whalers that hailed from the United States. It's not clear whether the whaling crews interacted with the local population at all or what their motivations were for choosing these particular carving sites. It could have been an intentional signal of disrespect, or they could have just thought they were adding graffiti to a place that already had a lot of graffiti on it. Uh, This particular study also noted that the interactions between these whaling crews and the indigenous people of Australia is something that warrants further study. Because in a lot of places, it's not clear whether anybody came ashore, whether they had any contact with anyone, but it's also clear that the Native people knew that there were whalers off the coast of Australia. Uh, So there's lots of room for more work to be done. Moving on, a team has determined that cave art found in the Balkan Peninsula in 2010 is the peninsula's oldest known figurative cave art. So that oldest known designation is what happened this year. The paintings date back about 34,000 years, and they include a bison, an ibis, and what may be human figures. Researchers at the University of Barcelona have also found a piece of Paleolithic art carved into limestone that they're describing as a very early example of narrative art. The piece is about 12,500 years old and appears to depict two people chasing two birds, which appear to be an adult and a young crane. There are only three scenes found in Paleolithic art so far that depict humans alongside birds. So next up, we have a whole collection of findings that in some way are connected to like a technological acronym. So it's things like DNA and CT scans and LIDAR, stuff like that. First up, researchers used DNA analysis to study some chewed up pieces of pitch that were unearthed in Western Sweden back in the 1980s. These were about 8,000 years old, and at the time, they were being used to make weapons. So people would heat up this pitch and then chew on it to make it really soft and sticky, and then use little bits of it to do things like attach points to weapon shafts. The DNA analysis suggested that three different people had chewed on this pitch, two female and one male. And they may have been quite young, based on the size of the tooth impressions as young as five years old. But they did not find any weapons that were made with this particular pitch. So it's possible that they were just kids chewing on the same stuff used to make weapons and were not weapon makers themselves. And another discovery. In previous installments of Unearthed, we have talked about Vikings a lot. And we have also talked about horse burials a lot. And now we have both at the same time. We knew that Viking warriors were often buried with their horses, and now, thanks to DNA evidence, we know that most of the Viking warriors were male, and so were the horses that were buried with them. Of the 19 horses that were studied in this particular project, 18 of them were male. All of them appeared to be healthy and well cared for before being killed, apparently for the purpose of the burial. In 2016, researchers performed CT scans on a group of mummies at a hospital in Madrid. This year, they announced their findings, that one of them was a priest named Nespamedu, who was Pharaoh Ptolemy II's eye doctor, possibly also Ptolemy III's eye doctor, although that is a matter of dispute. Uh, And they made this conclusion based on a collection of plaques from within the bandages, one of which was Thoth, god of eye doctors. He has that designation because of a story within the mythology of replacing somebody's eye after it was knocked out, I think, in battle. 
Uh, In previous installments of Unearthed, we have talked about the use of ground-penetrating radar and other non-invasive technologies, which has led to the discovery of massive cities and buried structures in South America and in Europe. Similar discoveries have also been happening in Africa, where LIDAR scans in a South African nature preserve have pinpointed the location of the city of Quenang, which thrived from the 1400s until the late 19th century. Its basic location was already known, but this pinpointed it more specifically, and this new study also suggests that it had about three times as many buildings as previously thought. It's likely that the city uh, was composed of between 800 and 900 walled compounds, housing as many as 10,000 people. A team from the University of Cincinnati have discovered evidence that suggests that the Maya did more than a subsistence level of farming, growing a surplus of things like cotton to trade all around the Yucatan Peninsula. This research has involved satellite imaging and LIDAR studies that have revealed drainage and irrigation systems along with roads. In the words of Nicholas Dunning, a professor of geography who is part of this research team, quote, it was a much more complex market economy than the Maya are often given credit for. And last, we have a little lengthier find. DNA testing has been conducted on the remains of Casimir Pulaski. Pulaski was an immigrant from Poland to North America. He became a general in George Washington's Continental Army. He's considered now to be a war hero in both Poland and in the United States. Scientists who examined his skeleton a couple of decades ago found that his pelvis looked more like what they would expect on a female skeleton. They were surprised enough by the pelvis's appearance that they wondered whether his bones had been replaced with someone else's. At the time, they planned to compare DNA from the remains to Pulaski's living grandniece. But the technology in 1996 was not yet advanced enough to give a truly conclusive answer. That is not the case today, and this year, researchers concluded that yes, the bones really are Pulaski's. So this evidence also suggests that Pulaski may have been intersex or had physical traits that don't clearly fit into a binary of male and female. So in Pulaski's case, this includes that his bone structure appeared more female, while he also had male pattern baldness and facial hair. Facial hair is not an exclusively male trait, but his pattern of facial hair was definitely more masculine. This news led to a number of articles suggesting that Pulaski might have been female or that we might need to refer to him with she-her pronouns instead of male pronouns. But that also doesn't really match up what we know of Pulaski's life. He was recorded as a boy when he was baptized, and he really doesn't seem to have gone outside the gender norms for men during his life. If he or his family thought anything was unusual about his body, that is not recorded anywhere. So, taking all of our cues from Pulaski himself, he remains the right pronoun. Yeah, we we should not reassign people's pronouns based on DNA evidence contrary to how they actually lived. Uh, This was also part of a Smithsonian Channel documentary, which, to be clear, I have not watched. I don't know what all it says in there. It's called America's Hidden Stories. The general was female, question mark. And maybe we will have an episode about Pulaski at some point in the future. Yeah, he seems really interesting. Um, This research is also really interesting, and it's also uh, always interesting to have another potentially intersex person um, in our library of episodes. And... The last bit before we take a break isn't directly related to Casimir Pulaski, but it does follow on with this practice of trying to figure out sex and gender based on a person's remains. 
And the idea of researchers figuring out a person's sex based on their skeletal remains has come up pretty frequently on our unearthed episodes and in other episodes of the show. But this is a really difficult task in cultures that practice cremation. In a paper published in January, Claudio Cavazzuti of Durham University discusses analyzing the cremated remains of 124 people, which were buried along with gendered grave goods, as in a grave containing weapons probably belonged to a man and a grave containing a yarn spindle was probably a woman's. They cross-referenced 24 different skeletal traits with the goods those remains were buried with to see if they could find anything that seemed to predict gender. Out of these 24 traits, eight of them predicted the grave goods gender with an accuracy rate of about 80% or better, which is comparable with the methods that are used to evaluate uncremated remains. So measurements of specific parts of the bones, like the thigh, the upper arm, the jaw, and the big toe, among others, seemed to correlate with the grave goods even after the body had been cremated. There is still a lot of room for uncertainty in this, though. It all rests on the assumption that a society had very clear gender roles in which people did not really deviate from those roles and that people's grave goods were closely connected to their gender. It also assumes that there's a close correlation between gender and sex. And in the words of a press release on this discovery, quote, anatomical sex determination is possible in cremated remains, though they caution that the measurements identified in this study differ from those used to sex modern cremated remains, indicating that sexually diagnostic traits differ between populations across time and space. But it is still an interesting potential new source of data. Now we're going to take a quick sponsor break before getting into some other things. Next up, we have a whole collection of things that were repatriated or returned to where they came from. First up, art detective Arthur Brand returned two Spanish reliefs that were at least a thousand years old, handing them over to two officers and two museum curators at the Spanish Embassy in London. These reliefs had been stolen from the Santa Maria de Lara Church in northern Spain in 2004, and then a British couple bought them having no idea what they are or that they had been stolen. The British Library returned three historic documents that had been removed from a Greek monastery in 1979. Authorities in Greece had traced the illegally trafficked documents to the British Library, which immediately returned the documents through the Greek embassy in London. And another similar story, a Bible that was stolen out of the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh in the 1990s was found in a museum in the Netherlands and returned. The Bible was 404 years old, and its theft had gone unnoticed for several years until auditors surveyed the rare books room where it was housed. There were 314 books missing from this room, allegedly thanks to library archivist Gregory Prior and Caliban bookshop owner John Schulman, who were in on the job together. It appears that the criminal case for the two of them is ongoing. Yeah, as, as I was looking at this, there, was, there were a lot of indictments and hearings and things like that, and it doesn't appear that there have been convictions or acquittals yet, unless I missed something. This is not the only huge document or book theft that we have to talk about, because in similar news, in the 1940s, Harold E. Perry, who was a clerk in the Massachusetts State Archives, meticulously stole an extensive collection of historical documents and then covered his tracks by destroying the records of those documents in the archive catalog, 
This is just evil archivist day. A lot of these letters were kept in a bound book, and he also clipped out the index page of the book that listed the documents. His crime came to light, and he was arrested in 1950, and he received a suspended sentence in exchange for helping track down the material that he had stolen and then sold. Last year, authorities tracked down one of the documents, a letter from Alexander Hamilton to the Marquis de Lafayette written in 1780 during the Revolutionary War. The FBI ultimately seized the letter from an auction house in late 2018, and in May of this year, the U.S. attorney filed a forfeiture complaint in federal court to try to get the letter back into the Commonwealth archive. That process seems to still be ongoing. A relief found in Australia's Macquarie Museum has been repatriated to Egypt after it was discovered that the piece had been smuggled out of Egypt in the 1990s. The fragment was initially unearthed in the 1970s or 80s, but then officials at the storehouse where it was being kept discovered that it was missing in 1995. Now we're shifting gears to talk about uh, the remains of people. And in April, Germany began the process of returning the remains of Aboriginal people to Australia. These remains had been removed from Australia in the late 19th and early 20th century. The April ceremony was the first of several, described by Australia's Minister for Communications as, quote, the largest number of ancestors returned from Germany to date. In Australia, attempts will be made to confirm the identity of each so they can be returned to the appropriate people. And for one last gear shift in this section, in opposite news to all of that, in April, Greek President Prokopis Pavlopoulos called for the British Museum to return a collection of 2,500-year-old sculptures known as the Parthenon Marbles, which were removed from Greece by Lord Elgin and are now in the collection of the British Museum. So Greece has been requesting for these marbles to be returned since it became independent in 1832, and this is also a developing story with protests taking place over it at the British Museum in June. The museum has maintained that these were acquired through a legal agreement with the Ottoman Empire, which ruled Greece at the time, and has so far return, refused to return the marbles. Now we're doing a, a bigger gear shift to kind of nuttier topics. Uh, yeah, these are just the <laughs> stuff that was just weird. It comes together because it's weird. The Calbee Potato Chip Factory, so there's your clue, we're really shifting gears at this point, in uh, Hong Kong has been using French potatoes to make its chips. And one of its shipments earlier this year contained not a potato, but an unexploded World War I hand grenade. That's a fine how-do-you-do. The grenade had been discharged, but it had not been detonated. And then it probably just lay in a field until it was accidentally dug up along with potatoes. A bomb squad detonated it on site. No one was injured. And then the news reports call it a bomb de terre, which is great. Yes, if you do not speak French, yes. a pomme de terre is what you call a potato. potato. It means apple of the earth. Yep, but this is a bomb de terre. I'm not usually really into the puns, but the fact that this one combined the French that delighted me. A plumber and machine operator in Aalborg, Denmark, pulled a medieval sword out of the ground in February, having just found it on the job. The Historical Museum of Northern Jutland was called in and identified the sword as probably dating back to the 14th century. They noted that it was very well made and was the type of item that normally would have been buried with the person who owned it. So they speculated that it may have been lost during a battle and then it just stayed where it fell for the centuries that followed. This is not the first just discovered sword that we've talked about, but it's been a while since we had one that wasn't in a lake. 
A team at the University of York has unearthed an account of a nun faking her death to escape the convent. The register that contained this account was in the archive the whole time, so the book itself was not lost. But this was part of a marginal note in one of them. So somebody had to actually read all the scribbling to get to it. It dates back to 1318. Archbishop William Melton wrote the nun, Joan of Leeds, was after, quote, the way of carnal lust. But really, that may have just meant that she wanted to leave the religious life behind and get married. He wrote that she, quote, out of a malicious mind simulating a bodily illness, she pretended to be dead, not dreading for the health of her soul, and with the help of numerous of her accomplices, evildoers with malice aforethought, crafted a dummy in the likeness of her body in order to mislead the devoted faithful, and she had no shame in procuring its burial in a sacred space amongst the religious of that place. (laughs) He later described it as a scandal of all of her order. So, in the reporting about this, Professor Sarah Reese Jones described this as being like a Monty Python sketch. And so far, no one has found an update about the resolution to all of this. We don't know what happened with Joan of Leeds or what happened with the rest of her orders. Mystery. I hope she had a, a very fun life. According to a paper published in the Journal of Archaeological Science, Iron Age Celts in southern France may have tried to embalm decapitated heads. They came to this conclusion while studying skull fragments that dated back to the 3rd century BCE, with the fragments likely coming from people who were decapitated after having been killed in battle. They found traces of resin that are not present in animal skulls from the area, suggesting that the resin was applied intentionally, probably to try to slow down the decay process. These skull fragments were also found within the walls of a compound, so they suspect that this was done for the fort's own warriors as a mark of respect, maybe to display them, not to preserve the skulls for display outside as a warning to their enemies. I guess maybe if you were really into it, you might preserve your enemies' skulls and hang them inside to look upon them in victory. (laughs) The whole thing is just a little, let's preserve this head and keep it indoors. All I can think of is Futurama's head museum. Yeah. Where they just keep heads alive so that you could talk to former presidents. Uh, (laughs) We are once again moving into a new area of discussion. Now we are to uh, a fan favorite, which is shipwrecks. Yep. Who doesn't love a shipwreck story? Uh, An anchor off the coast of Cornwall may be from the Merchant Royal, which was a ship that wrecked in the 17th century and is described as the most valuable shipwreck of all time. A fishing vessel called the Spirited Lady caught the anchor while trawling. Separately, Alexandria University's archaeological mission found several submerged anchors off the coast of Egypt as well. A shipwreck found off the Mediterranean coast of Egypt in what was the sunken port city of what I think is pronounced Thonis Heraklion, uh, that is a guess, has confirmed Herodotus' description of a type of boat known as a baris. These ships were used to sail along the Nile, and Herodotus wrote a lengthy description of them and their construction in his history. He said that they were using planks arranged like bricks and connected with tenons, with beams stretched over the planks, with a rudder and keel, and the whole thing made waterproof with papyrus. So he wrote this description about 2,500 years ago, but this is the first time anybody has found the exact type of vessel that he was talking about. I don't know if anybody super doubted whether he was being truthful in this account of boats. There are plenty of questions in Herodotus' history. Uh, but it 
was nice to have it validated. In other news, an astrolabe was pulled up from the wreck of the Esmeralda, one of Vasco da Gama's ships, in 2014. This year, it was confirmed to be the oldest astrolabe ever found. Da Gama had left the Esmeralda off the coast of Portugal in 1503, and the ship later sank in a storm. This astrolabe was so worn by the time it was discovered that its markings were no longer visible to the naked eye. It just looks like kind of a corroded disc. So it took laser scanning and the the construction of a 3D model to actually confirm what it was. A whole bunch of shipping containers fell off a ship in the North Sea at the beginning of this year. Some of those contained hazardous materials, and the area is ecologically delicate, so salvage crews got to work trying to track them all down. And they wound up finding a shipwreck that dates back to 1540 and is described as Dutch maritime history's missing link because it represents a bridge between medieval maritime technology and the Dutch Golden Age. This is at least 50 years older than the previous oldest Dutch ship, and researchers are hoping to use it to learn more about how Dutch maritime technology evolved. An ancient shipwreck off the coast of Greece has been opened up as a public underwater museum. And it's not all that uncommon for shipwrecks to become dive sites. I mean, we talked about beer brought up from a shipwreck earlier in the show. But this is the first ancient shipwreck in Greece to be open to the public. It's a ship that went down in the late 5th century BCE, so it's very old. It was carrying a huge load of amphorae filled with wine. So divers can see the remains of the ship and these jars that are all over the seafloor, plus, of course, the sea life that makes its home there now. And then our last thing is just a cool thing that Tracy found. And I love it. I thought you might. (laughs) (laughs) Archaeologists from Washington State University have found what they believe is North America's oldest tattoo tool. It dates back about 2,000 years to the ancestral Puebloans in what is now Utah. And it is made of a sumac handle, yucca leaves, and cactus spines. And those cactus spines are stained black at the tips. Yeah. (sighs) I wonder what that tattoo was. (laughs) It's a good question. Um, and that has been Unearthed for July 2019. We'll have some more Unearthed in the fall. See how it goes in terms of having them more than twice a year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in the meantime, while we ponder what that could be like, uh, do you have listener mail for us? I do. It is another listener mail uh, about Tiffany stained glass. And so this is from Nathaniel who says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer. I just listened to your recent podcast on Hapshetsut. I was aware of her existence, but not much more than that, and I'm amazed at how much more there is to know about her and the mystery of Poont. Thank you. The reason I'm writing, though, is the letter you read at the end of that episode from a listener and stained glass artisan, Christopher. I loved hearing what Christopher wrote, and I wanted to add more information in that vein. I'm also a great fan of Tiffany Stained Glass. Put me down as another plus one request for an episode on that or an adjacent topic. And wanted to let you know about an even bigger Tiffany treasure trove close by. I'd like to thank Christopher for having so many T's in that sentence. 
The Church of the Covenant at the corner of Berkeley and Newbury Streets, just one block away from the Arlington Street Church in Boston, which Christopher named in his letter, has not only an enormous intact collection of Tiffany stained glass, the church's sanctuary's whole interior design was entirely done by Tiffany to coordinate with the windows and includes an enormous Tiffany chandelier that was displayed at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It's the largest surviving church that Tiffany ever did, unchanged since completion apart from maintenance and is now a National Historic Landmark. Tracy, since you're a fellow Boston area local, you might want to know there are open tours of the sanctuary offered in season most days. If you want to do an episode on Tiffany or stained glass, I'm happy to put you in touch with someone at the Church of the Covenant if you'd like. Although not a frequent churchgoer, I grew up attending Covenant and married there a few years ago and I'm still a member. I would be thrilled to be helpful to you. Uh, Then uh, Nathaniel passes on uh, a topic suggestion about the invention and history of pipe organs, which is also really fascinating And then concludes, I love the podcast and love history. Thank you for helping me discover fascinating hidden knowledge about the world. You make me a better and more nuanced person. Warm regards, Nathaniel. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. Um, Yeah, there is a surprising amount of Tiffany glass and Tiffany designed stuff in Boston, and I'm sure in a lot of other cities too, uh, that way back when we first talked about Tiffany stained glass on the show, One of the things that I had stumbled across in very short succession was that a a whole building that was originally designed, the interior design was all done by Tiffany, and there's this huge restoration project going on because it's a building that changed hands a lot of times. So unlike this church, uh, like a bunch of stuff is covered over and moved around, and they've been trying to put it back to what it used to look like. So there's just, there's so much. Uh, So thank you. Nathaniel, for that note, and to everybody who has sent us lots of email lately, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, and then we're all over social media at Mist in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also come to our website, MistInHistory.com, and find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever worked on together. This one includes the links to the original stories for all of these things that were unearthed. You can also find a searchable archive at every episode ever. And then up at the top of the page where it says live shows, you can see information about our upcoming live shows and tour. And you can subscribe to our show in Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 